0: Hello and welcome to Self Work. This is my 45th podcast episode. And more importantly, this is the one year anniversary of me starting to podcast. (laughs) I want to thank those of you who've become subscribers and regular listeners. And if you're new, welcome to you too. When I started this journey Back last year, I had no idea how podcasting would open up so many opportunities and relationships with people who listen. I'm delighted to be here. Just a little info on me. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've practiced in Fayetteville, Arkansas for over 20 years, and I wanted to extend the walls of my practice a little bit to those people who might not ever have been in counseling or even if you were might want the perspective of a psychologist or a therapist on different issues that we all deal with. I hope I have some fun and meaningful things to offer in this second year. Starting next week, you'll be able to download what I call nitty-gritty or short and sweet tips that will just be little tidbits for you to take and use in your daily life. Then we'll continue with the longer episodes of Self Work. I'm also really looking forward to starting some interviews, and I've got that rolling because there's so many interesting people in this field that I'd like for you to meet. And actually, I'd also like to talk to them about what they're doing, what they believe, what they've figured out. We can all learn from each other. I'm so enjoying getting emails from so many of you and discussing what's on your mind. I'll give you my email in a minute, but I want to get into this podcast. Because it's based on an email from a listener, which I'm going to give you now. It's on self-compassion. Hi, Dr. Rutherford. I'm a 31-year-old female listener of your podcast, which I found through the Modern Miss Darcy blog. So thank you, Modern Miss Darcy. My question, which lingers still after reading many of your blog posts and listening to your podcasts on perfectly hidden depression, is this. How does someone who has decades of experience suppressing feelings and emotions learn how to feel these feelings? I've come to realize that chronic pain that I've dealt with for years is psychosomatic and that many physicians who recognize the mind-body connection say that this issue is common in people who do not know how to feel their feelings. The pain is a distractor. The cure, according to the doctors, learn to get in touch with your emotions feel your feelings. No more suppression, denial, or hiding. This seems to be similar to your description of how to deal with perfectly hidden depression. I've seen two therapists whom I did not find helpful and I've not been able to figure out how to feel my feelings on my own. Looking at a list of emotions just puts a name to the feelings. It doesn't help me actually feel them. I'm still at the level of thinking about feelings and analyzing them, not actually feeling them or getting emotional. So I guess I have two questions. How do I find someone with actual experience or knowledge in this area, or how do I learn on my own to feel feelings? To someone without this issue, this probably sounds silly or easy, but it's definitely not. This email was so provocative to me because it really put to words so many of the things that my own patients deal with, and perhaps you do too. Are you scared to feel your feelings? Do you even know how? So I'm going to tell the stories of two patients, one who's dealing with more classic depression and one who's dealing with perfectly hidden depression, neither of which could express compassion for themselves. Then we're going to talk about four steps in learning how to feel painful emotions, answering the listener's email. And then I have a second email that I want to read and answer because it's about helping children through recent hurricanes. So we've got a lot on our plate today. Thanks so much for joining me again on my first anniversary podcast. (laughs) I don't know how many of you are Harry Potter fans, but I watched all the movies. My son read all the books, which one of these days I'm going to do. And there was a scene in one of the movies that Harry yelled, I don't care. I've had enough. I've seen enough. I want out. I want it to end. I don't care anymore. And Dumbledore looked at him and said, you do care. You care so much. You feel as though you will bleed to death with the pain of it. Because, of course, underneath the very adventuresome battle for Harry Potter to vanquish Voldemort was his grief. His parents had been killed when he was only a toddler. And although surrounded by wonderful friends and the guidance of caring adults, he was alone in that grief. And there were times he desperately wanted that pain to stop or to avoid feeling it. We do a lot of things to deny or avoid feeling painful emotions. We drink too much. We work too much. We dive into Facebook. We Netflix binge all efforts at escape. Sometimes that's just for fun. I understand that. But sometimes it's about escape. We can avoid feeling anything at all and focus on control or organization or order. We allow our minds to constantly turn things over and over. We worry. We worry about things we can't even control. We deny the impact of hurts or actual trauma from the past. We discount And rigidly compartmentalized abuse that we suffered, meaning that you kind of put it in a box and stick it up in an emotional closet where you never go, where the light never shines. Because nothing could be worse than a whiner, right? What could you do about it anyway? You had a mom who was a roaring alcoholic, or a, a dad who had multiple affairs. Your older brother fondled you, or you got raped in college, you were bullied by other boys, or you were in a terrible accident that took the life of a friend. Why feel the emotions that those memories bring? What's the point? Here's the point. Because the very avoidance or denial of pain that's yours reflects a lack of value for self. The message you send to yourself, my pain, me, what happens to me or what happened to me, isn't important enough to honor. It's plain and simple. When you don't value yourself, your emotions, your pain the rest of your life will likely reflect that choice in ways that you don't even know or recognize. A man named Roger came into therapy because he was trying to decide whether or not to divorce. That's the reason he gave when he came in. He'd been married many years with no children to a woman who he'd been actually relatively happy with, and he felt tremendous guilt over hurting her. He'd cry in my office and say he didn't know if he could do it or not. They'd both focused on their careers and traveled, And he'd been extremely successful. But now in middle age, he was restless. So he said to me, I'd like to quit my job. I've always wanted to do something to help other people go to a much poorer country and volunteer my time and expertise. I said, what would keep you from doing that? He paused and said, to be honest, I can still hear my dad screaming at me that I wouldn't amount to anything. And how do you feel about that now? Again, another pause. His words showed no emotion. I don't know how rich I've got to be to feel successful. All I know is that it's not enough now. My question, what amount would ever be enough? I don't know. What do you feel when you remember being screamed at like that? I don't talk to my dad. But what do you feel? What would you want to say to that child, that child who was you? He said, I don't know. Go be successful. Prove your dad wrong. Roger couldn't have compassion for himself. He couldn't even try to feel what that child may have felt like. He stayed in therapy for a couple more sessions. He divorced his wife and quickly got into another relationship. He actually paid for his ex-wife's therapy and told her he'd always take care of her. He didn't understand why she remained so hurt. He continued working as an engineer and making a lot of money. I hope you can hear this emotional paralysis and the difficulty with being vulnerable that Roger was experiencing. And he did recognize the connection analytically between what had happened with his dad and his inability to stop making money. I mean, he was a millionaire. He didn't need any more money. But he couldn't feel that pain. He could feel guilt over his present-day actions, but he couldn't feel the pain that he'd suffered as a child. It was way too vulnerable for him. But let's take someone who experiences what I call perfectly hidden depression. You can find podcasts on that all over the place. I started with three and four, then I have a couple of others, the 10 characteristics of perfectly hidden depression. Ashley was a young mother who had had four miscarriages. She told me one time that When she had heard about people like her, she'd been very judgmental and said, why don't they just stop trying to get pregnant? But she had undergone seven years of infertility treatment and was feeling more and more distant from her husband as they tried to handle that very frustrating and painful journey. She described them, we're the couple everyone wants to be. We act just fine, but we're actually pretending to be okay. And she said, I don't want to go on like this. I asked her about her biological family and she said there wasn't any pain that was allowed to be expressed. My dad violently backhanded me when I was six and I had to have surgery to fix the damage. I haven't seen him in years and my mother never talks about him, never talked about what happened and she's expecting me never to ask any questions. Now what's the connection? She told me that even after years of not being able to get pregnant or of miscarrying. She said, I never cried. It was on to the next procedure, on to the next drug. She said all this, smiling, her eyes dry. But she'd come in because she'd read about perfectly hidden depression. There are many of us that are just like Roger and Ashley. We're emotionally paralyzed. That's what a lack of compassion can do. It keeps you stuck. We're living out choices that are connected with old hurts that we don't even realize. Roger wasn't ready to talk about more painful feelings, but Ashley was and did great work on her depression. She ended adopting, by the way, very happily. Now, I obviously don't know what would have happened if Roger had been able to feel more empathy for himself as that child, if he would have made a different decision about divorcing his wife. I can't say that. But I know that his decision-making would have been less chaotic and more clear if he had been able to make those emotional connections. So what are the steps in developing compassion for yourself? You know, compassion is being able to feel what someone else is feeling, to feel benevolent toward them, to be concerned for their welfare, to try to understand whatever their plight is. Empathy and compassion are very similar. It's very different from feeling sorry for someone, feeling pity for someone. Instead, compassion has within it understanding and acceptance. So the first step in developing compassion for yourself is to see yourself as you tend to view others. Let's say you saw an adult throwing big rocks at two children. Would you ever tell one of those children that their fear or their horror wasn't important? You wouldn't. Both of those children are experiencing the same thing, a parent attacking them, and of course, that would be traumatic for them. So whatever has happened in your life is just as important as what happens in other people's. Here's the second step to recognize the defense mechanisms or strategies you used to cope with or detach from pain or trauma. When there was no one to help, when no one stopped your parent from screaming at you, no one noticed the bullying, your brother told you he'd hurt you if you ever told about his fondling you, you've tried to forget the rape, you survived. You began detaching from the pain of what had happened. It's a good skill. That kind of compartmentalization is not bad, it's good except when it's overused. You can begin to see that whatever you do to detach, that there's a downside, a price to pay for that detachment from darker emotions or more tender emotions, because they're not gone. And they're likely having a silent effect on your choices and your life, just like Roger's were, just like Ashley's were. The third step is to actively challenge those habits and beliefs that fuel the detachment. We can call it getting unstuck. For example, if you tend to escape through alcohol or drugs or work or whatever, sit down and write about what you're afraid to feel. What am I trying to avoid feeling by eating, by drinking, by working too much? If you tend to want to stay in control... Then actively look for opportunities to allow others to be in charge, to take a back seat, to let go of all the responsibility. When you're not hiding behind being busy, what do you feel? You know, insight is great. Understanding, oh gosh, yeah, I really like to stay busy. I'm kind of uncomfortable with nothing to do. Or, yeah, I know I work too much because I don't want to realize some things in my marriage or whatever you're avoiding. You figured it out. You have insight. But change comes from doing something differently, where you actually have a different experience of life. I'll give you a real tangible example. You know, if I, I know I'm afraid of heights. I can't even stand at a second floor window and look down without my stomach going up in my throat. But until I challenge myself to go up on a balcony or climb a mountain, I can have insight. I know that I am scared of heights for no really good reason or for a real good reason, whatever it is. But I can avoid that fear by always staying on the second floor, by not looking out glass elevators or whatever it is that I'm trying to avoid. It's not till I challenge myself to look out that I will feel those feelings and be able to work through them. So the trick is, don't do what you do to avoid your feelings and then see what happens. It takes a lot of intentionality, but you can do it. For example, if you worry a lot or stay in your head for most of the day, like the listener wrote that she can analyze her emotions, but she can't feel them. Try to start writing about what you're worrying about and begin to notice how you feel as you write and after you write. If you're one of those people that deny the importance of whatever trauma you experienced, try telling it, all of it, to someone you trust who you know has the capacity for empathy, someone who will take the time with you and is actually able to feel their feelings. And if you watch for their reaction, you're going to see compassion. You can see how important what happened to you was, how important you are. I very well remember a woman who had told me about being sexually abused by her stepfather, but it wasn't until she was out with friends one time, and she decided to tell them. And their look of horror really reflected to her what her own pain level could have been. They were thinking about themselves, they were thinking about their own children and what that must have been like for a young child. She came in that session and said, you know, I need to process this more deeply. I need to feel this. A lot of times what is underneath the inability to have compassion is shame. I don't deserve it. I've messed up too much. However it is that you fuel your own shame. I do have an episode on specifically looking at shame if you'd be interested. But not valuing yourself, being shameful, can really get in your way of allowing yourself to feel emotions that are normal. And the fourth step is more conceptual. Realize the value ...of a rich emotional life and confront your own fear of feeling pain. When an artist paints, for example, they often have a color palette they're working from. Different artists use color shading or brush strokes in diverse ways. It's often how we identify their work. That looks like a Monet or that looks like a Picasso. We're the same way. We color our lives by expressing our own diverse, unique emotions... So if you enjoy a wide range of emotions from a good old belly laugh to mild irritation or peaceful contentment to an indignant anger, that wide range of emotions gives you many options or many colors to paint with, many choices of how to feel. When you have compassion for yourself, it makes all of those feelings more available. In a way, it expands your own emotional palette. You can claim and express emotions that perhaps you first recognized as a child and then can be greatly healed by the understanding and empathy you can have as an adult. Now, obviously, depression is getting stuck in those painful emotions, becoming so dark inwardly, sometimes even that death can become a welcome alternative. That's not what we're talking about. And if you are there, please seek help I've certainly heard that before. If I feel those feelings, I'll never be able to recover. If you're struggling with that, you can certainly seek treatment, seek help, because there are ways to get out of that painful place. I know that grief can sometimes feel like it's going to kill you. Having self-compassion can often connect with whatever grief you have. Yet recognizing pain and working through that pain Challenging your own denial or avoidance, owning your own vulnerability, having self compassion. It can free you to feel all of yourself, all of your feelings. So I guess this is listener email day because I've got another one. It's brief. Hello, I follow you on Twitter and your podcasts. You give great advice and tips and welcome questions. I wanted to ask you about my kiddos, not me. I'm married and we have three girls, but we were flooded with Harvey. We had to be rescued by boat and lost the contents of her home and both vehicles. We've been staying with family. When she wrote this, school hadn't yet started yet. I've had to cancel lessons and possibly dance classes. I'm trying to work around my husband's schedule, but I'm unable to work at this time. So schedules and routines are non-existent. She says, it stresses me out, but what can you do? (laughs) I'll manage. Great attitude. I'm just wanting to make sure my girls are impacted as little as possible by all this and can easily work through it without consequences. The oldest is quiet. The middle is more talkative and expressive. The youngest just talks about the flood. So any thoughts... Our tips are greatly appreciated. So, this was my response I'm so sorry that you and yours are part of the flood devastation that's ongoing and will be ongoing. I've taken the Red Cross training for emergencies, and their ideas blended well with what I've been taught in school. Let your children talk all they want to. I'm sure the schools are going to have programs for them. Realize they may regress a bit in age-appropriate behavior, meaning a, an 8-year-old may act a little more like a 6-year-old or a 6-year-old like a 4-year-old, at least for a while. It's okay, they'll return to normal. Help them realize that they'll all feel differently about it at different times. You and your husband can also talk about what it was like for you, not oversharing certainly, but modeling for them, using emotional words they might recognize. Watch for sleep disturbance and problems with eating. Also remember that they won't understand what you and your husband are going through. You've always made things right, and you can again. They'll probably have a lot of trust in you about that. Depending on their personalities, they'll handle the lack of order and control differently. But perhaps you can focus on something in their world that they do have control over, even little things, to help them feel as if something has solidity please know that we're all thinking of you. If you or people you love are dealing with hurricanes, we've had so many of them, and now there are horrible fires in California again, please know that your children will be okay as long as you allow them to process and talk about it. They'll all be different, just like you're going to process it differently and work through it differently than your friends. And simply support them in that. Then if they have nightmares or flashbacks, you can take them to a therapist when you get a chance. Play therapy can often be extremely helpful with children and actually doesn't usually take too long to help them work through whatever they're going through. Play therapy is a special kind of therapy just for kids. Thank you so much for joining me today on Self Work. There are lots of ways to connect with me, reach out to me. My website is DrMargaretRutherford.com, or I have a Facebook page where I often either post my own things, do Facebook Live videos, or I publish posts that I think are really relevant and helpful. That Facebook, of course, is DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com as well. I will answer you, and those emails are confidential. I am so grateful to the people who have left reviews on iTunes, Coding Queen, Jen Morissette, 35Y, (laughs) N3VEDA, Diane. Thank you all so much for leaving, one, really good reviews. I appreciate that especially, but leaving review. I'm really trying to grow my audience, and ratings and reviews raise me in the ranks on iTunes, and although I don't really like caring about that too much, it does help self-work become more known. So if you could take a couple of minutes to do that, I would be, again, so very grateful. Or you know what? You can use the good old method of telling your friends (laughs) word of mouth. That's also incredibly helpful. So I hope you'll jump on board and subscribe and join me from the second year of self-work. You can also email me any questions that you would like answered. Again, I'll either do that on my new little five-minute segment, self-talk, or I'll do it on self-work or just privately. Thanks again for listening. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to self-work.